Good morning. My name is Chad. I'm the senior pastor here. We're glad to have you with us this morning for corporate worship. We're going to be in Genesis 4 this morning. We start that chapter in Genesis. So with that said, turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, we're going to begin in verse 1. We'll start reading there. We're going to read all the way to verse 16, though you know better than to assume we're going to cover all the way through verse 16. So but I want you to hear this in context. And now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground... It shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we receive this as what it is, your word. May we not be like Adam and Eve who failed to listen to your voice. May we not be like Cain who here failed to listen to your voice. By your spirit cause us to hear what you are saying and so believe and repent. Help us to understand what your spirit is saying to your church in this word that has been superintended by Moses for your people in every age. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin Genesis 4, I don't want us to lose sight of Genesis 1 through 3. We spent some time walking through those foundational chapters. Foundational not only to the book of Genesis, but foundational to the whole of Scripture. In fact, this whole chapter, chapter 4, is still in the section that we began in Genesis 1 through 3, namely the section that began in Genesis 2 4, or the first genealogy. If you remember, I told you that Genesis is arranged around Toledotes, or genealogies. There's 10 of them, and you see the first one mentioned in Genesis 2 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You see the second. Genealogy come in Genesis 5 and verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In other words, Genesis 4 is included in this 
story, if you will, this history of the heavens and the earth as told through the creation and fall of man as well as the promise of God to save him. The story of Cain and Abel fall in that first genealogy. The story of Cain and Abel is genetically, you understand why genetically, related to what's come before, and it's thematically related to what we've just been learning. Over the next few weeks, we will see the development of the conflict between the seed of the woman, promised in Genesis 3.15, and the seed of the serpent, and the war between the two of them. We'll see the development of that theme. We will see how the curse of sin and death has torn asunder family and social relations, has sent human society or the city of man on a path of wicked pride and rebellion against God. We will see how the theme of exile that we looked at last week is furthered as Cain is expelled even further east of Eden. What's interesting is Genesis 4 leaves us Right at the gate of Eden, Adam and Eve are expelled down the mountain, if you will, and out the gate, and Adam and Eve begin to propagate a family right outside the gate that goes into Eden. They're outside of it with their family. They're east of Eden, but still fairly near, and you'll see that Cain is going to be expelled even further east of Eden, further into exile. But this morning, I want to look at the beginning of all this and the story of Cain and Abel. We're going to take the story of Cain and Abel over the next two weeks. This morning, we'll look at Genesis 4, 1 through 7, and next week, we'll look at Genesis 4, 8 through 16, and then we'll finally look at what comes of these two seeds or these two family lines the week after that. So this morning I want to look at Genesis 4, 1 through 7, and as we do, I want to look at two primary points today. Here's the first point I want to make this morning. I want to talk about the false piety of Cain. The false piety of Cain, and I'll define what I mean by piety and why it's false as we go along. But the false piety of Cain, and we're going to look at that in Genesis 4, 1 through 5. And then second, I want to look at the kindness of the Lord toward Cain. And we're going to look at that in Genesis 4, 6 through 7. So let's begin by looking at the false piety or the false worship of Cain in Genesis 4, 1 through 5. Now before we look at the text, I should probably define my terms. When I say the false piety of Cain, I'm referring to his false worship. His hypocritical devotion His empty religion. That's what I mean. What I mean is the same thing that we hear from the prophets and from Jesus when they condemn the worship of Israel as hypocritical, empty, disobedient, and unbelieving. And unbelieving. It's the sort of critique you hear from the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. If you remember, the Lord Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah in Matthew 15. And if you remember the scene before Jesus quotes from Isaiah, the Pharisees essentially, or the religious leaders of the day, have come to Jesus and said, hey, your disciples aren't doing things quite right according to our tradition or custom. And they challenge that. And then Jesus comes back at them and says, hey, you've forsaken God's law. For your traditions. What have you done? You've come to the temple or the synagogue. And you offer your money. You tithe it. And you do so saying. Our aging parents who are destitute and in need. Sorry. We got nothing for you. We've given it all to the church. And Jesus is coming at them saying. You're coming to give to the church while violating the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. Your religious practice is sick. He goes on to say this. This people honors me with their lips, 
They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What was the problem? They were tithing at the expense of keeping the fifth commandment. I know we don't often think about that, but to honor your father and mother doesn't just mean obey them as children. It does mean that. We'll see that clearly in Ephesians 6. But it also means honor is a word that deals with financial care. We can see that, for example, in 1 Timothy 5.17, where the elder who rules and teaches well is worthy of the double honor. And then he says you don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. That word has to do with financial care. Elderly parents who need financially care from the children are supposed to be financially cared for by them according to the fifth commandment. To not do so, and instead to give your money to the church like you're some kind of super religious person, Jesus says is disobedience to God. False worship. And Jesus is condemning that kind of false worship. It's as if the Lord had said, These people say righteous-sounding things. They even do righteous-looking things. They often engage in the practices, which they did, the practices, the religious practices, that I have commanded them to engage in in worship. Yet their hearts are far from me. And those wicked hearts are shown as they make changes to what I've required when they worship. I never commanded giving to the church that equates to you leaving your aged parents financially destitute, ever. I never commanded service to the church that equates to you disobeying my law, ever. These so-called religious leaders have exchanged what I have commanded in worship for their own tweaks to religious service. And they've done it due to their disobedient and unbelieving hearts. They do something that looks like righteous religious service. It looks pious and spiritual, but it is actually just disobedience. Please do not misunderstand me. The Lord is not condemning the religious practices that he commanded. I think sometimes we misunderstand this in our culture. We think the Lord is condemning the religious practice of the Jews commanded in the Old Testament. The Lord commanded those practices. He isn't condemning them. He's condemning the changing of them. He's condemning the heartless, faithless employment of them. He's condemning the ways in which we subtly change his commands out of unbelief and disobedience. Fundamentally, the faithlessness and the disobedience of, and hypocrisy of the worshiper is what's being condemned. That's what's being condemned. The central problem is that the worshiper, I want you to hear this because this is so important, the worshiper has chosen to offer worship that pleases himself rather than pleases the Lord. The ultimate question is never, did the worship please me? Never. I hear this all the time. Oh, I thought worship was so good today. Who cares what you thought? You aren't the one being worshipped. The question is, did the worship today please the Lord? Did he think it was good? That's the question. If it pleased the Lord, then it ought to please you. The ultimate question, did the worship that you offered, that happened congregationally, did it please God? And folks, the Lord is not offended by prescribed religious practices or biblically commanded forms of worship. He's not offended by those forms of worship or those practices. These are not what Jesus nor the prophets condemn. Jesus is not saying, I hate your religion because it just isn't spontaneous enough for me. Jesus is saying, I hate your religion because you've chosen to do what I've not commanded you to do. You're disobeying what I have commanded you to do. God's not opposed to religion. 
God commanded the religious practices of Israel, and he commands the religious practices of his New Testament church. God is opposed to false religion. The Lord is opposed to man exchanging his own inventions in place of what the Lord has commanded. The Lord, for example, commands the public reading and exposition of Scripture in 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 4, both. We exchange that for stories and jokes and skits and all kinds of junk the Lord never asked for. The Lord commanded public prayer. Confession of sin. Baptism. The Lord's Supper. The announcement of the gospel. The blessing or benediction of God's people. He commanded all of that. The taking of an offering on the first day of the week. We exchange all that for entertainment. He commanded the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We exchange it for other stuff. He's not opposed to well-ordered religious worship. In fact, he's commanded it, by the way. Rather, God is opposed to man performing empty, heartless, faithless, disobedient religious practices. You can do everything I just listed in a faithless, heartless, disobedient, hypocritical manner. And we will see this with Cain. So I know some of you probably, this is what started happening. I started saying what the Lord hasn't commanded and instead has. And you started going, oh, those churches that do all that other junk. And you forgot, hey, you can do all the right stuff and do it faithlessly, disobedient, and hypocritically. Cain is going to do largely the right thing. In part, he puts a tweak on it because of his heartless, faithless disobedience. Before we look at this problem, let's look at Cain's family. Let's look at the birth and vocation of the two sons to whom Eve gives birth at first. Look at Genesis 4, 1 through 2. Let's look at their birth and vocations. Now, Adam knew his wife Eve. That is a Hebrew euphemism for the fact that they consummated, if you will, They're going to have children, you understand. Now, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Eve gives birth, and she has gotten a man. Gotten a man. Now, it's fascinating because this is not... Eve announcing, I've gotten a baby, or I've gotten an infant. She's actually announcing, I've gotten a full-grown man. I've yet to meet a woman who says, I've conceived, I'm pregnant with a full-grown man. I mean, I can't wait to give birth to him. (laughs) They always say, oh, we're having a baby, not we're having a full-grown man. There seems to be an indication here that Eve believes Cain may be the second Adam. The Lord promised the seed of the woman, remember, who would crush the head of the serpent, and Cain is being compared to Adam as the second Adam. Why? Because first he is a man, the Hebrew word ish, from Genesis 2.23. I will call her woman, for she was taken from man. I will call her isha, for she was taken from ish. He's a man, like his father Adam. Second, he is a worker of the ground. Do you notice that? And Cain, a worker of the ground, a worker of the Adamah, a farmer, as Adam was, a worker, a farmer, Genesis 2.15. Adam, you are to keep it and work it, or work it and keep it. So there seems to be a parallel being drawn between Cain as the firstborn, the primogenitor, the one who would lead the family of man, and a comparison between him and his father, Adam. Eve seems to be, in other words, expressing faith. Faith that in spite of the curse, she has reproduced. And the Lord is keeping his promise to send the seed of the woman. Now, just as a side note, 
There are scholars who believe because that little phrase, with the help of the Lord, that with the help of is not there in the Hebrew. It says, I have gotten a man, the Lord, in Hebrew. And so some scholars think Eve's faith in the second Adam is developed to the extent that she believes she's given birth to the God-man. Now, I think that's a bit optimistic. But minimally, it's clear, I think, Eve thinks she's given birth to the Messiah. And he's compared with Abel directly. We're going to soon see, though, that Cain is not the seed of the woman. Rather, Cain is the seed of the serpent. We're especially going to look at that next week. But Cain's birth is being emphasized at this point. You notice how Abel's birth is mentioned almost like an afterthought. Notice, now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man, the Lord, or with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, by the way, Abel's name just means breath, not breath like the Holy Spirit, like Ruach, but breath like we pick up in Ecclesiastes when we say vanity. It's like a foreshadowing that Abel's life is going to be short-lived. And Abel, now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. We're seeing their two vocations emphasized there. Their birth order, Cain is first, Abel is second, Cain is emphasized, Abel is de-emphasized. You guys see how that's following? Okay. Second, their vocations. Cain is a worker of the ground. He's a farmer like his father, Adam, was. He's a farmer. Abel's a keeper of the sheep. He's a shepherd. Those are their respective vocations. That's what they do. And now that we've seen their vocations and their births, let's consider their religious worship or their piety because their birth order and their vocations will play into what we see in their respective worship or their piety. So look at Genesis 4, 3 through 5. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. That's what you would expect a farmer to bring. He's going to bring an offering. He's going to bring the fruit of his work, the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. That's what you would expect a shepherd to bring, a sheep. That's what he works with. That would be the product of his work or his vocation. Now go on. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. In the Hebrew, literally, he gazed upon Abel and his offering. It's a way of saying he was pleased with. It's a euphemism. He was pleased with Abel and his offering. Pleased with Abel and his offering. You hear that? Pleased with Abel and his offering. Then it goes on. But, verse 5, for Cain... And his offering, he had no regard. He did not gaze upon Cain nor his offering. He was not pleased with Cain or his offering. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Let me walk through that briefly. If you notice the first verse, verse 3, in the course of time. That's literally in the Hebrew, at the end of days. And what that is, it's an expression that's likely better translated this way, at the designated time. It's not just like Cain and Abel one day thought, hey, an offering to the Lord would be kind of cool. Now's a good time. It's at the designated time. At the designated time. The emphasis is on a specified period of time that's coming to fruition. Specified period of time is coming to fruition. God has appointed a time for worship. You will see that in Genesis 1 and 2, that God is not just saying who you worship, how you worship, but when you worship. You'll see that in the law of Moses. God is quite concerned with when you worship. It's not just any old day you want. Fourth commandment, on the Sabbath day. There are feasts he's appointed. They don't just do the feasts whenever they want. They do them in accord with the sacred calendar the Lord has given. There's a day of atonement. They don't just bring the atoning sacrifice whenever they want. Once per year on the day that God has prescribed. 
And the point here is that Cain and Abel understand they are in a covenant with God that began with their parents in Genesis 3 and that includes them. And that that covenant has stipulations with regard to worship. They must have learned this from their father. There's a proper time prescribed by God to come forward for worship and offerings, and that's when they come. By the way, when is the church to collect the offering, 1 Corinthians 16? On the first day of the week. What day is that? Sunday. This is just the Lord is concerned with time. Cain is a farmer, and he brought an offering of fruit, which matches his respective vocation. Abel is a shepherd, and he brought an offering of sheep, which matches his respective vocation. And they both did so at the designated time. Now, I want to take a moment to remind you of two things that you must keep in mind as you read this passage. First, this book is written by Moses as part of a five-scrolled book, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They had all those books in one scroll. And it was written to an audience, the particular audience being the Jews who were with Moses coming out of Egypt during the Exodus on the way to the promised land. I bring that out because there are textual clues that would have stood out to Moses' audience immediately. I want to provide a couple of them. First, they would have seen Israel on the way to the promised land would have seen no problem with bringing forth either fruit or sheep. They would have seen no problem with it. In fact, this language in the Hebrew for brought and offering is the language from Leviticus 2.2 and Leviticus 2.8 about bringing an offering. And Leviticus 2.2 and Leviticus 2.8, that's referring to a grain offering. So it doesn't seem Israel would see a problem with the offering being brought corresponding to the respective vocations of Cain and Abel. Now, often folks want to make an issue out of Cain's offering not being a blood sacrifice. I'm not sure I can contend that rightly as being the problem here. Now, listen, I'm not saying it's impossible. It's possible, but it seems really unlikely. So what do I think is the problem? Well, let's look at the other matter that would stand out for Israel. They would have noticed a contrast in this text between Abel and Cain and their respective offerings. And it isn't the type of offering they brought in the sense of grain or fruit versus animals. It's in the quality of the offering they brought, if you will. So look there at verse 3 again. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. Now notice the phrase, of the fruit of the ground. That's it. Of the fruit of the ground. Now notice a change in the way Abel's offering is. Verse 4. And Abel also brought not one of his sheep, but what? Of the firstborn of his flock. And of their fat portions. Cain is not bringing the first fruits. Listen to Leviticus 2.14. So I'm going to continue with my claim that this language is from Leviticus 2. And a grain offering would have been acceptable. Listen to Leviticus 2.14. It's a turn there. Just listen. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord. You shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits. You guys hear that? Cain is not bringing the first fruits. He's not bringing the choice portions. Abel's bringing the very best. Abel's bringing the first fruits. He's bringing the fatty portions. That's the creme de la creme. That's the best you can bring. And note the response of the Lord at the end of verse 4 and 5. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. The Lord accepted Abel's offering. He gazed upon it with favor. This is a manner of speaking that means it pleased the Lord. Abel's offering pleased the Lord. The Lord rejected Cain's offering. He did not gaze upon it. It did not please the Lord. We're not certain how they knew the Lord was pleased, by the way. Like, how do you know? They've laid their offerings likely at the gate, right outside the gate that enters Eden. They've laid their offerings, and one of their offerings pleases the Lord, and the other doesn't. 
How did Cain and Abel know this? Somehow the Lord has divinely revealed that to them. Now, early church fathers, in line with what we see in much of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books, argue that probably the Lord sent fire down to consume Abel's offering and did not send fire down to consume Cain's offering. And I think that's probably the most likely scenario, given the whole of the Old Testament, particularly the first five books. But we don't ultimately know. What we know is the Lord somehow divinely revealed, Abel, I'm pleased with your offering. Cain, I am not pleased with yours. And I'm not pleased with you, Cain, but I am pleased with you, Abel. Now, here's a question. Why is Abel's offering pleasing to the Lord, and thus Abel pleasing to the Lord? And why is Cain's offering not pleasing to the Lord, and thus Cain not pleasing to the Lord? Now, I've been working at that answer already. I hope you've been hearing me work at that answer already. But I want to carry it a bit further. I think it's because of both a deficiency in the offering itself. You've brought me something that is not the first fruits. You've brought me the leftovers. You kept the best for yourself and brought me what was left over. It wasn't really costly to you. It's like after you had taken care of everything you wanted for you, then you gave something to me. There was no cost to you. And that deficiency in the gift reflects the greater problem, which is a deficiency in the heart of the giver. That's the greater problem. It shows you the problem in the heart of the giver. The gift is not what the Lord asked for. The Lord did not ask for an empty offering. He did not command an offering that is not costly. He wanted the first fruits from the heart of a giver who trusts in him. What's being demonstrated here is that Cain is disobedient, and he is such because he is unbelieving. Do you remember when the Lord commanded Saul to devote Agag and the Amalekites and all they owned to destruction? Agag and the Amalekites, just so you know, descend from Esau's family. This is part of the ongoing struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And Saul, who is the king of Israel, a Benjaminite who shouldn't have been the king of Israel, supposed to be from the tribe of Judah, and who was sinful in many regards, was commanded by the Lord to go and destroy Agag Kill Agag the king, kill all the Amalekites for their wickedness, and take everything they own and burn it. What did Saul do? Well, he went through the motions, if you will, of obedience. He went through the motions of obedience, but he did not obey from his heart. Rather, he kept Agag alive. That's disobedience. He tries to bring Agag in, by the way, alive and pretend like this is something noble he's done for the Lord. Look, I've brought this wicked king in front of you. The Lord told him to kill him. He didn't do it. Samuel, frustrated, I won't go into the whole scene, but Samuel, frustrated, righteously so, with Saul's disobedience, takes a sword and cuts Agag to pieces as the prophet because Saul didn't. But further, Saul keeps the best of the spoils. Takes the spoils, keeps the best of it. Also disobedience, tries to pin it on his people, incidentally. And then he tried to offer a religious sacrifice of the spoils. Also not what the Lord asked for. Another disobedience. Samuel tells Saul what the Lord thinks of his empty religion. I want you to hear this. What he thinks of his false piety. His empty offering. Here's what he says. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. What's Cain not doing? He's not obeying the voice of the Lord. Who cares about his burnt offering and sacrifice? Behold, Samuel goes on to say, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen to the voice of the Lord is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption, presuming upon the Lord that you know what's best, not him, is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. 
Listen, Saul did not believe nor listen to the Lord, and thus Saul disobeyed. Saul was not like David. If you remember after David's sin, he refused to offer a sacrifice that cost him nothing. Somebody else was going to provide the sacrifice for him, and David said, I will not offer a sacrifice that costs me nothing. 2 Samuel 24, 24. Rather, Saul was like Cain, whereas David was like Abel. Saul had an unbelieving and disobedient heart. And friends, without faith, disbelieving heart, it's impossible to please God. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Keep your hands at Genesis 4. We'll come back, particularly to look at verses 6 and 7. But look at Hebrews chapter 11. Now, we spent some time in Hebrews 11, a lot of time in Hebrews 11. So if you want more information, you can go back and listen to those sermons. But look at Hebrews 11 for now. We'll just briefly touch on it. I want to start in verse 6. I'm going to take the text a little bit out of order because I want you to hear the principial comment with regard to faith made in 11.6. It's actually made in 11.1 and 6 because faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, when you believe you have the thing, you've apprehended it. It's not if you believe someday you'll get Christ. It's you have him now. It's not someday you'll have eternal life. You have it now. That's why Jesus would say, if you believe in me, you're alive already. Eternal life's already begotten, been had. But notice what he says in verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For who would ever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now look at Hebrews 11.4, and we're going to see the comparison of Cain and Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. We continue to learn from him. Abel's offering was made in faith. Cain's offering was false piety, false worship, false religion. Abel trusted the Lord and he was commended as righteous. And Abel's faith in the Lord was demonstrated. It was demonstrable. You could see his faith. It wasn't just something that he did where he honored God with his lips. He didn't just say the right things to his friends and his family. He showed them the right things in his acts. He gave an offering obediently that was costly to him. Cain's lack of faith was demonstrated as well. It was demonstrated in his disobediently giving an offering that was not costly to him. Cost him nothing. It looked outwardly righteous. But inwardly it was disobedient and faithless. Cain gave an offering, but it was Hear this, it was after he took something for himself. Cain was neither a cheerful nor a sacrificial giver. He was neither one. Rather, he was an unbelieving and disobedient religious worshiper, a hypocrite, attempting to go through the motions. This actually reminds me of the story of the 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon that he told. You may have heard me say this before if you've been at Sovereign Grace long enough tells the story of the carrot and the horse. If you haven't heard this story, I want you to hear it. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. One day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to the king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot that I've ever grown or will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this and said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if I gave the king even something better 
The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed before the king and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart as well and said, Thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me a carrot. You were giving yourself a horse. Friends, is your obedience to the Lord spurred on by faith in him? Or are you just going through the motions as a kind of empty religion in which you hope to gain something for yourself? That's what pagans do, by the way. Pagans appease deities so they can get things from them. Are you giving the Lord a carrot? Or are you giving yourself a horse? Are you worshiping the Lord in faith? Or are you trying to use the Lord for personal gain? See, Cain was giving himself a horse. That's what Cain was doing. And every worshiper who comes before the Lord offering worship in an effort to secure worldly gain is just like Cain. That's the problem with the prosperity gospel. I believe so that I can get something. I sacrifice an offer so I can get something even better for it. And while I can turn on TVN and see the gross display of that kind of paganism calling itself Christianity, where they attempt to exchange worship for health and wealth, let's move from that low-hanging fruit where we can point at them and say, look at them, and deal with our own hearts. Here's a question. Why do you come to the Lord? Do you come for a better marriage? Do you come for better outcomes for your children? Do you come for better success in employment? Do you come for a better America? For a smoother life based upon moral precepts? Do you come so that you can feel safe and comfortable? Why do you come? In other words, do you come to the Lord for the gifts? Or do you come for the giver himself? You'll know. As soon as the gifts are taken away, you'll run away from the Lord. That's how you find out. As soon as you're frustrated that he's not delivering in spite of your faithfulness, you'll see it. You'll know it when you're praying the prayer. Lord, why have you brought up this upon me after all that I've done? I've believed you. I've trusted you. I've told people about you. I've been obedient, and you're not giving me what I want. You've been giving yourself a horse. If I ever stand from this pulpit exhorting you to give your life to the Lord so you can gain some worldly good, rather than so you can have the Lord himself, then please run me out of this pulpit that very day. Run me out, for I'm teaching you idolatry. That was Cain's response to the Lord's displeasure. Look there. What was it? Look at... Genesis 4, 5, we'll see Cain's response to the Lord's displeasure. Verse 5, you might know this when you give yourself a horse. You might know this same response to the Lord's displeasure. Last phrase of verse 5, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. This manner of speaking about being angry is often used of anger that precedes a homicidal act. It's actually used that way, for example, in Genesis 34, 7. Anger that precedes a homicidal act. It's, I hate the other. If you will, he's angry, he's envious, he's hateful, and his face is downcast. Now, this is not so much depression in the modern sense as it is sullenness. It's a kind of, woe is me. I'm the victim here, and I'm angry about it. Listen, the Lord 
rejected him due to his own sin. But the idea here is that he is sullenly blaming the Lord and blaming his brother Abel for his rejection. He will not look in the mirror and say, this was my doing. It was me. No, for Cain, it must be the doing of the other. See, it's not my fault. I was just born this way. I've struggled with this all of my life. Every one of those is a subtle way of blaming the Lord. It's his fault. It's not my fault. It's Abel's fault. He's my younger brother, and he has shown me up. It's his fault. Look at him and his righteous deeds. He thinks he's better than me. If you don't think that's what Cain's thinking, you haven't read 1 John 3, 11 and 12, which we'll look at next week. Cain is self-absorbed, angry, and downcast, and Cain is without real remorse. His primary concern is himself and his punishment. His primary concern is not pleasing the Lord and loving his brother. And we're going to look at that more next week as we see Cain murder his brother, Genesis 4-8, and then complain about the consequences of his sin. He doesn't ever come to the Lord and complain or say, I repent, I have hated you and murdered my brother. No, he comes and says, oh, the punishment, verse 13, is too much for me to bear. The punishment is too much. Listen, we see this with men all the time. Commit adultery on their wives. By the way, it goes the other direction too. But commit adultery on their wives and they come into us and they say, well, it's this woman. It's not my fault. No, it's you. You committed adultery because of your heart. Well, this is all too much. She wants to check my texts all the time and my emails. She doesn't trust me anymore. The punishment is too hard for me. You know what? You bought and paid for every bit of her distrust. You did. You're worried about the punishment. You're sloughing your sin off on the other, and you're not facing yourself in the mirror and saying, this is on me. I hate my sin. I will do whatever it takes to kill my sin if that whatever it takes to kill my sin. I'll do it. The punishment is never too much for me to bear because the great punishment I don't want to bear is not consequences in this life. I don't want to stand before a holy God and be condemned to hell. I want him. I'll bear whatever it takes to kill this sin. That's not what Cain does. Friends, it is not the sin against the Lord and your neighbor that grieves you. Is it not that? That should be what grieves you. Not your consequences. Are you not willing to cross land and sea to kill your sin? So you no longer displease the Lord. If your first concern is that the punishment is too much to bear, then you do not see your sin as it is because you do not know the holiness nor the kindness of the Lord against whom you sinned. Cain's reply to his own sin is a turn on himself even further. He's going to pull away from his brother and kill him rather than see him as a righteous man to whom he should turn He's going to turn away from the Lord and his voice. Like Judas, he does not repent. Rather, he is filled with sorrow and then commits metaphorical suicide. Judas committed actual suicide. Cain commits metaphorical suicide. He kills Abel, and his exile does result even further from God, even further down from God's presence into death. And this is where Genesis 4 shows the Lord to be so remarkably gracious. So remarkably kind. The patience and kindness of the Lord that comes in verse 6 and 7 ought to take your breath away. Look at what Cain is doing and look at how the Lord responds. So let's consider the second main point, which is much shorter than the first. 
the kindness of the Lord towards Cain. Look at Genesis 4, verse 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is toward you, but you must rule over it. I just want you to think of the gospel the Lord is eager to preach to Cain. Just understand this. Cain has sinned against the Lord. The Lord is eager to preach the gospel to him. Cain has disregarded God's voice. God is eager to come and preach the gospel to him. I want to look first at God's patience in verse 6, and second at God's loving kindness in verse 7. First, look at God's patience in verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? He comes to Cain and he questions him. He says, why is your face fallen, Cain? Why is your countenance fallen? Why so angry? Why so implacable? Why are you scowling? The Lord has every right. I want you to hear this. The Lord has every right to bring immediate judgment upon Cain. Yet, rather than immediate judgment, he patiently questions him. The Lord knows the answer. What's he doing? Same thing you're doing as a parent when you come to your children after they've disobeyed and you begin to question them. Not because you don't know what they've done, but because you're seeking their repentance, their confession. Why is Cain's face fallen? Because Cain is unrepentantly caught up in worldly sorrow. He is sorrowing that things are not going his own way due to his own sin. But the Lord, in questioning him, is patiently, patiently putting out his hand to Cain. When your friends come and confront you for your sin, I'm talking about doing so in love. They are, on behalf of the Lord, patiently putting out their hands toward you. Cain, why are you downcast? Cain, why not repent? Cain, do you not know the gospel? Cain, the seed of the woman is coming to save all those who trust in him. Will you not look to him in faith and be saved? How do I know that? Second, consider God's loving kindness in verse 7. Look at verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? That's the first phrase, and then he's going to warn him. If you do well. In Hebrew, this question is, here's how it sounds in Hebrew. If you do well, uplifting. That's it. Uplifting. His face has fallen. If you do well, uplifting. Or, here's the point of if you do well. If you do what pleases the Lord, in other words, what pleases the Lord? Faith. Trust. If you do well, if you do what pleases the Lord, if you trust the Lord, and if that faith is a living faith, a faith that gives birth to obedience, will there not be an uplifting of your face? Another way to translate that last phrase, the Jewish Targums, which are the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, The Jewish Targums translate it this way. If you do well, if you believe, will you not be forgiven? Will you not be forgiven? Likely the point is that if you do well, if you trust the Lord, repenting of your sins and walking in obedience, then your face will be lifted up. In fact, God's countenance upon you will be lifted up. Listen to the ironic blessing in Numbers 624. The Lord bless you. This is to a people who are under the curse. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What does the lifting up of his countenance upon you mean? It means he will look on you cheerfully with all favor. Think about that, sinner. You trust him. He'll look upon you cheerfully with all favor. The Lord will be well pleased with you. You'll have received objective reconciliation with God. And the inner tranquility that comes or that accompanies knowing the smile of God upon you. 
You'll be redeemed, forgiven, counted righteous. You'll be able to confidently draw near to the Lord with your head lifted up. Friends, if you do not know the Lord, if you have not trusted Christ, then look to him and be saved. Repent of your sins. In context of what we're saying, I want to say this. Repent as well of your damnable good works. Your empty, hypocritical, religious service. Trust the Lord Jesus. Trust him. Come to the Lord and receive him as your great reward. If you are someone who professes faith in Christ, repent of every way in which you have falsely worshipped, of every way in which you have used the Lord, offered worship for the sake of some worldly good. Further, the Lord graciously warns Cain of what is coming. If he does not trust him and repent, look at the rest of verse 7, and we'll pick this up in earnest next week. But listen to the rest of it, the warning that comes from the Lord, and hear the kindness of God. And if you do not do well, if you don't trust me, with a kind of living faith that gives birth to obedience. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is toward you or contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This is communicating a gracious warning. Sin is being personified like a crouching demon at the door, like a lion waiting to pounce. Sin desires to have you to conquer you, to consume you. If you continue, here's the Lord graciously calling on Cain. If you continue in this unbelief and worldly sorrow, then be warned, sin is like a demon crouching at the door of your heart. And it will consume you. But you must master it. You must rule over it. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. And by God's grace, you can and must master sin. But only by God's grace can you. Only by God's grace can you. Sovereign grace, God is proclaiming the gospel to Cain. It's glorious. And warning him to repent and believe rather than continue in his sin. The Lord is patiently and kindly calling Cain to repent and believe the gospel and he'll be saved. He's also warning Cain, continue in your sin, and you'll be condemned. Next week, we'll consider more closely God's warning to Cain, Cain's sin, and God's judgment. But this morning, I just want to press this question. Are you looking to Christ? Are you trusting in him? Are you resting in his grace? Are you resisting the devil, knowing he will flee from you? See, Cain and Abel are representative of the church in Genesis 4. There's Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. That's the church. That's the people of God. And the Lord Jesus, in verse 6 and 7, is standing at the door and knocking. If Cain will hear his voice, he'll open the door, and the Lord will come in and commune with him. Sadly, Cain does not listen to his voice. Cain hears only only his own voice. Only his own voice. He refuses to trust the grace of God in Christ and chooses to trust himself and continue in his sin. May we be like Abel. May we be like Abel, who through faith offered a more acceptable sacrifice through which he was commended as righteous. May we trust in Christ and may we hear Paul's appeal as to our offering in light of God's grace. What's our offering? I appeal to you, brothers. Therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your spiritual worship. Sovereign grace, we don't just bring a little fruit of the ground. We give our whole lives, body and soul, the best of what we have. May we bring our whole life, not the leftovers of our time and treasure and talent, but our whole life, and in view of his stunning mercy and grace, offer the whole thing to the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us 
to see our sin, to see the ways in which we use you, in which we do not hear your word and listen to you, in which we are not believing and repenting and obedient. Cause us to repent, to trust in Christ. Help us to see the magnificent patience and kindness you showed even to a man like Cain, a man who wickedly rebelled, a man whom you knew was on the verge of murdering his brother, and yet you held out your hand to him, offered him mercy and forgiveness, and warned him not to continue. Such grace. You've shown us grace upon grace in Christ. After generations of wickedness, rebellion, and sin, you've sent your Son. May we look to him, give thanks for him, be truly repentant, and in view of your mercy, offer our whole selves as a living sacrifice, the best of what we have, all that we are, in faith in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.